for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. All right, well, we're in a series entitled The Church. We spent the first three weeks looking at the leadership in the church. We've spent the last few weeks talking about discipleship, which is really just the ethos of the church and and the streaming life of the church. And that's what we're going to finish up with today as we look at the aim of spiritual maturity. Let's go to Titus chapter 2, verse 11, and let's read our text for this morning. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of His Word today. In this series, we've talked about how discipleship streams through mission in the church to grow and mature God's people as the church. And so discipleship defines the life of the church. And and one of the things I told you when we started this was that I'm going to have to deconstruct some of your understandings of discipleship so that I can reconstruct a biblical understanding of it. And I'm not trying to get to the intricacies of all that that means or all that that includes, but just looking at discipleship as a whole, I want you to understand what it is for the life of the church. It defines the life of the church. As we saw in the first 10 verses of Titus 2, it defines our relationships and who should be in those relationships. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, pretty much spans from birth to death, right? Everybody should be in these, in these relationships. It talks about the conversations that we should have and how the doctrine of God our Savior, which is a phrase meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ, It's saying that that should be the center of our conversations in these relationships so that we talk about the realities of life and point people through encouragement, through rebuke, and through exhorting one another in the gospel, point people back to Jesus so that we can grow spiritually. So the first two sermons in in chapter 2 of Titus, we're focused on this ethos or this defining characteristic of spiritual growth. And that's what Paul was talking about in how discipleship takes place. And he says this, that spiritual growth should occur, the last phrase, phrase of verse 10, that we might adorn the gospel with our lives. So discipleship in the church is a defining characteristic among the relationships and the conversations of the church that we might grow spiritually in order to adorn the gospel with our lives. That's where he's brought us to today. And that's what we have been looking at. And so we see that that's what biblical discipleship does. It cultivates this spiritual growth in order to adorn the gospel with our lives. But what I want you to see today is that spiritual growth is not the end goal of discipleship. It's not the end goal, but rather we want to move forward in growth for a specific purpose. For discipleship cultivates the gospel in the church in order to mature Christians. That discipleship cultivates this ongoing work 
labors for the gospel in the church in order to mature Christians. So while spiritual growth is the defining characteristic of discipleship, the aim of discipleship is spiritual maturity. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And we're going to really look at this idea of how do we adorn the gospel with our lives. That's where Paul leaves us at the end of verse 10. And when he picks up in verse 11, he says, for. Now that word there is that connector that says what we're about to talk about extends from everything we just, I just wrote to you. So adorning the gospel with our lives leads us to a specific Place. This discipleship cultivates our salvation for its full purpose to bring the change that has occurred within all the way out. And listen, friends, the power of God that saves you is the same power that matures you to full life transformation. I want you to see that this morning. I'm going to highlight for you four marks of spiritual maturity, of Christian maturity. And these are a way that we can understand what Christian maturity is for our lives. I want you to walk away understanding what God's purpose is for your life so that through the gospel you can engage, you can join God in this work. As he says, work out your salvation for it is God who wills and works in you. We join God in this work that he is doing in us. And here's how Paul begins. Are you ready? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. That word appeared is a very interesting word that we need to pause on for just a minute to understand what God is doing in salvation. It is a past tense word, which basically means what? It's done. It's finished. It's complete. It happened in real time before the time we're in now, and it happened in completion. And what happened was that God's grace came into view or came into sight. God in the past, in completion, brought his grace into View. You see, what Paul's talking about here is the incarnation of divinity. He's talking about the birth of Jesus Christ and Jesus becoming a man. This is the point at which Christianity is set apart from all other religions. This is the point where Jesus, as the leader of Christianity, is set apart from all other leaders. This is the point at which the claims of God in the Scripture about Christianity are set apart from every other religion that has ever been. And this is the point, this appearing that has happened, this is the point that separates the reality of Christianity from the reality and claims and leaders and all other religions of the world. Friends, I want you to understand every sphere of reality was eternally altered when God's grace appeared. I'm going to prepare you for something this morning. I'm going to preach and then I'm going to teach. And what I teach is going to be very intricately tied to what I'm about to preach. But I want you to understand the gravity of what Paul is saying in this phrase. And I want to illustrate it with two scientific concepts. Now, if you're not big on science, that's okay. Neither am I. That was a joke. Hello. I'm not against science. I'm just not real good at it, okay? That's, that's uh, what I'm saying. The first illustration to try and help you understand the impact of how Paul is starting verse 11. I, I want to refer to something known as a space-time continuum. Space-time continuum. This is a phrase that refers to the combination of two physical constructs, space and time. And it creates a new mathematical and physical reality. 
Now, this was revolutionary in the 1900s when a scientist by the name of Herman Minkowski introduced this concept of space-time continuum based on Albert Einstein's theory of relativity. It's so interesting. I mean, after all of these years, when I first learned that theory in school, I thought, I'll never use this again in my life. I was wrong. I'm using it today. Okay, I made a joke this last week uh, to a mom at a volleyball game, and you know she was talking about her daughter was struggling with remembering some algebra uh, formula or something. I said, just tell her she'll never use that again in her life. Little did I know the mother was the math teacher. Whoop! <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong. You know, I was like, <laughs> get my foot out of my mouth, right? It was bad. It was bad. I avoid that woman now. I'm so embarrassed. Space-time continuum. And what he said was this, that space holds three dimensions, right? 3D objects, we get that. And time holds one dimension. And together, they form a four-dimensional object. You're already living under the reality of some of this. Well, you're living under the reality of all of it. Let me back up. But we're experimenting with the reality of it because they have cameras that video in four dimensions now. I mean, it's just, it's wacky, you know? And, And so there is this continuum. In this continuum, we know of no missing points. And, and this continuum can be endlessly subdivided without limit of size or duration. I mean, it's, it's, it's not really something we fully grasp. We just know it is. And it doesn't evolve, he says. It just simply exists. And so the author goes on to say that physicists now routinely consider our world to be embedded in this four-dimensional space time continuum and all events all places all moments in history and all actions and so on are described in their location in terms of space time continuum that's important you see space time continuum defines the parameters of reality for humanity when we talk about that We're talking about the parameters that define our existence here today and every existence that has occurred in the history of humanity up until this point. That's what space-time continuum is all about. So when Paul says that Jesus appeared, that the grace of God appeared, We know that he brought the fullness of God into the world. Hebrews tells us this, that he was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the image, right, of the invisible God. That's what the scriptures tell us about Jesus, about this moment in space-time continuum when God's grace appeared. When Jesus became a man, the creator entered his creation. He came fully into all that was created by him, of all that was created through him, of all that was created for him, and of all that was being held together by him. I think Jesus has a good handle on this space-time continuum, don't you? I believe he does. And you see, when he came into this existence, he laid down his unconfined eternal glory, it tells us in Philippians 2. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, Philippians 2. tells us but rather being humble and obedient to the will of the father he became a man God's grace has appeared bringing salvation to all 
And in this entrance into our space-time continuum of reality, it's where you and I exist and Jesus came. Before he came, there were no limits or confines upon him. He humbly and he obediently gave up his perfect heavenly place so that he could enter our space-time place with you and with me and with all who have been here. And Jesus' entry into our space-time held a very specific effect for us. It's not like a traveling circus or, or, or it's where he would just wow the crowds or entertain the masses. We see that Jesus did not do that, though the crowds could not stop gathering around him. The Bible tells us in Mark and in Luke that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to seek and to serve save those who were lost. So salvation appeared and it walked among us when Jesus came into our reality. Now arguably Jesus' birth was the most unnoticed event in all of human history because of the magnitude of what was taking place and the absolute lack of recognition that it received at that time. But what actually took place was miraculous in every way. When Jesus was born, a grace boom occurred that still saves today. That's what took place with his birth. And that brings me to this second scientific illustration that I want to talk to you about for just a moment. A sonic boom. You know what that is? When planes travel... At supersonic speed, a speed roughly 760 miles per hour. And it can often happen just be before they reach the actual speed because of the, the airflow. But when they travel at that speed, it bends light waves from the pressure differentials that are created. I'm, I'm telling you, friends, I just love thinking about this. It kind of boggles my mind. But what happens is, as the plane moves and air moves across the plane... The pressure that it creates creates a funnel-shaped cloud that it immediately appears across the aircraft it's, itself, and it seems attached to the aircraft. What actually happens is that the air spontaneously reacts all at once in this funnel-shaped cloud to the temperature and the pressure of the aircraft that is sliding past it, and it reacts in two waves. First of all, it reacts as the air visually waves and ripples out like water. You drop a rock in the water and a circle of ripples and waves immediately go out. So that's the first wave. As this plane intersects this supersonic speed, automatically the air waves and ripples outward in that way. But the second thing that happens is that a shock wave occurs. At this speed, are you ready? Air can't get out of the way fast enough. I love that explanation. That's an explanation I can understand. Oh, the air is supposed to be moving for the plane. I see that now, right? Air can't get out of the way fast enough, and it forms a pressure wave. And the way that we experience this pressure wave is through what we call a sonic boom. It's actually a double boom. It goes, ba-boom! And you know at that point, at that moment, that plane broke through to supersonic speed. That's cool, is it not? I mean, I, I love that. I watched a video on this probably 50 times this last week. Because as I'm mulling this over and I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, imagine what it was like when the Son of God became a man and entered our reality. I mean, this is a boom of eternal proportion in our lives, friends, when the grace of God appeared. That's what Paul's saying to us. This is a proportion that is unmatched in any manner, in any experience in our space-time continuum. Eternity pierced space and time with a grace boom of reality-altering proportion. The light 
was bent into waves and ripples and sound pressure to boom and grace pierced into our reality. When divine sovereignty was birthed into humanity, God became a man in Jesus. This is no small matter. Time, air, space, and sound were not merely bent, but the boom of Jesus becoming a man was a word of praise to God who shattered our reality with his grace. And what a shattering of reality that was. He shattered the continuum of our reality when he became a man. Hear me, friends, when Jesus came, the divine, Hear me. Listen. Watch for this. See if you can't feel it. See if you do not sense this reality piercing appearance. Because the waves and the ripples and the boom of God's grace continue today. Satan has been crushed by sovereignty. Evil has been overwhelmed by love. Condemnation has been conquered by grace. Damnation has been destroyed by redemption. Uh, uh, Hell's inevitability has been extinguished by heaven's hope. Darkness was doomed by glorious light. Death was decayed by eternal life. The grave was ground to dust. Addictions were atrophied. Failures were fizzled. And defeat has disintegrated. Something altogether different pierced this world with saving power unlike any other. And when it did, grace appeared to us. Jesus alters history and reality with grace. With grace. For the grace of God If this appearance held such an impact on every other sphere of reality, what impact must it hold for our lives? You see, Jesus pierces another of the most intimate of realities. It's the reality of the human heart. When he comes and God's grace appears among us and brings what? Salvation. Salvation. That's what Paul's saying. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation. Friends, we're not here today. To speak of some admirable alterations that you can make to improve your life, to impress others, even to impress God. The impact of Christ appearing is so powerful, it changes not only our reality, but eternity. That's what Paul is grounding his argument for Christian maturity spiritual transformation up on. There is a power so incredibly great. Nothing that we understand as ultimately confining to us can prevent it from coming to us. Why? Because Jesus himself has delivered it to us. If you haven't already heard it, let me articulate it for you. For I promised you that there would be four marks by which you can identify Christian maturity. And here's the first one that I want you to see. The grace that has come to us that saves matures. You see, so often in the Christian life, we in some way separate salvation from discipleship. We talk about evangelism or discipleship like they're arch enemies. When in fact, they're one and the same. You see, we talk about about the Christian life and, 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 and being saved like it's a threshold to nowhere. But what... What Paul is saying to us 
is that salvation is the entrance to a life with God that is radically transforming to the depths as well as to the extremes and the extremities of life. Grace that saves matures. This, friends, is a biblical understanding of salvation. It's not a one and done, but it's an entrance into eternity. And when I talk to you today about Christian maturity, when I talk to you about discipleship today, when we discuss what God is doing in the world, and more importantly for each of us, understanding what God is doing in my life, We need to understand that it's not somehow disconnected from something that happened back when you prayed a prayer or you went to church more often or more regularly or in a different way. But in the same way that when Jesus pierced space and time with eternity and brought grace to us that saves us, he is continuing to work out that grace in our lives to mature us. In every way. Grace that saves matures. And every person who is saved by grace through faith will mature. Now I want you to understand what he says here about for all people. That is not a declaration of universalism as we would understand it in our day. He's not saying that oh in the end it really doesn't matter. Everyone will be saved as some would like to purport this verse to say. Rather what he is saying is every person who is saved will mature. So Christian maturity is a confirmation of Christian salvation. Do you understand that? Let me, let me turn that just so you can assess that as I preach today. But to look at your life and to see that there's no evidence of growth or maturity in your life is not to say that you've just got a little wrong with God and you might need to correct your error, but you need to consider if what you got when you think you got God was in fact God. Because grace doesn't quit. Grace is eternal and it brings you into eternal life. And I don't want to subject or suspect upon you then make you question your Christianity. But friends, if you're not confident of your salvation, if you're not secure in that salvation, you're going to question the appearing of God's grace when God wants you to live in the presence of his grace, the Lord Jesus Christ, each and every day. That's what I want you to see today. This is an agreement that all who receive God's grace by faith have all of God's grace to mature in Jesus' image. Let me just reduce it down to a way that I understand it best. Grace grows us and grace grows us up. The grace of God grows us and it grows us up. Grace from God received by faith matures a person into Christian like into excuse me Christ's likeness listen maturity is not a better you friends it's actually a much lesser you it's not about you being better it's about Christ being increasingly more in your life it means living on living in and living out the realities of God's grace in such a way that Jesus receives all of the glory from your life grace upon grace in other words grace is critical and continual for our Growth and maturity in the Christian life, we are transformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus to live out his will of loving God and of serving others in the world. And Paul shows us how this grace works for the Christian because he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what's the next phrase? It begins training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions so that we might live in the way that God has willed for us to live. Friends, the second mark of Christian maturity I want you to see today is simply this, that maturity is a process of training in grace. Maturity is a process of training in grace. This is not a process of earning our salvation. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that. 
But in salvation, it is a process of training in grace, in the very training that he speaks of. We've talked about discipleship and how we grow in the first 10 verses. That sound gospel doctrine defines the conversation among the church, and that multi generational relationships show who needs to be involved in these conversations and that these conversations need to focus on applying the gospel to the realities of life through encouragement, through rebuke, and through exhortation of pointing one another to Jesus. And so discipleship serves one grand purpose in the life of the believer to facilitate spiritual growth and sound doctrine that produces maturity through training to live in grace. You see, grace teaches a Christian how to live and empowers them to live in that way. That's the essence of grace for us. And this process of maturity is really important for us to understand. I want to unpack this word training just a little for us today. First of all, training talks about the Christian life and how it involves a process of learning to live in grace. I think this is important for you to understand because so many of us measure our Christian walk off singular individual moments in time, do we not? It doesn't matter if it's the mountaintop or if it's the valley low. We will enthrone ourselves and we'll crush ourselves all at the same time. And Satan will heap it on. When we feel like we're on top of the world because we're living in God's will, Satan will just slowly pump the, just to let us keep rising, right? Because he knows when it falls, it's going to hurt. And if we're in the valley and we feel crushed by our sin, what's Satan going to do? He's going to keep stomping, right? On top of us this time. Just, yeah, you're sorry. What we do is we, we measure our walk with Jesus by these individual moments. And we must be so careful not to make final evaluations on them. You see, uh, uh, individual moments do not determine ultimate failure or ultimate faithfulness. But rather, growth should be evaluated regularly by aligning the moments of our life to assess that overall trajectory of where we are headed. And the more moments you have, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more the trajectory of your life in maturing is going to be focused and moving towards Him. You see, maturity is not a point of arrival. It's a sustained process or journey of growth in Christ-likeness. And so here's what we're being trained in with grace in this process. First of all, we're being trained in how we change. We're learning how it is that we, as followers of Jesus and as people, change. And some people see sin that are horrendous and they're broken immediately. We hear their testimony so often that, man, I was in the deepest pit of addiction or, or a, a sinful relationship or whatever the case might be, but God saved me and bam, all of a sudden that chain of addiction was broken in me and I've been saved and never been tempted by it since. And we go, praise God, that must have been a real strong juice of grace. But we don't clap as loud. When we see that our change isn't as immediate, do we? When it's, it's an everyday grind. Every day I get up, within moments it seems like that temptation hammers me. It seems like my mind is littered with every rationale for why I can and why I should and why I deserve and why it would be better. And those we don't applaud as much because we feel defeated by them. And you see, what Christian maturity teaches us is not to just let those temptations go and let them do whatever, but we don't define our lives by the temptations that hammer against us. Rather, we're seeing the grace of God that even says to those temptations, you're not God's promise for me. You're not God's will for my life. You're not God's way in which I'm supposed to live. And grace is teaching me another way. And so when temptations come, do you know how many people Jesus condemned for temptations? None. None. Jesus doesn't save us so there will be no more temptations. Jesus saves us so we will be victorious over the death and damnation that sin has put on us. Temptation and sin are not the same thing, friends. 
but we will so quickly count ourselves out. Therefore, what we've got to learn to do in this process of change is we've got to learn to, I don't like this, you know, humble ourselves and receive. How many of you, if you go to the doctor for your annual physical and he says, you know, you need to walk more. You need to get an exercise plan and work it. You go, yeah, I'm going to work it. Yeah, you haven't done this in years. You've, you've, You've thrown more money at gym memberships than anything else in your life if they were to all be tallied up. But when the doctor says, what you need to do is you need to work a little harder and lose that weight and get healthy and get that heart. You go, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. And then two days later, you're sitting on the couch with a bag of Doritos watching Fixer Upper again because it just got put on Netflix, confession. And so, and you're like, I'm not going walking tonight. Are you kidding me? But when you're flat on your back because you just got out of surgery and you're hurting all over and you're going, oh, I'm miserable. I'm just having to lay here and watch Fixer Upper on Netflix, right? We're never satisfied. Why? Because we're trying to live without grace. We've got to learn to humble ourselves and receive grace upon grace. Grace is also training in a process, not only of how we change, but even more difficult, how others change. Mm. You mean I've got to be involved in their change? Yes. You see, as similar to yours as physical appearance will be how you understand other people's change in regards to yours. In other words, it's not going to be anything alike. The basic principles will be the same. The application will often be very different. And so what we have to learn to do in their change, and this is what grace trains us in this process to do. Are you ready? To give grace for others who need grace in God's change. Did you catch that? To give grace for. Four, okay, you ready? I'm going to keep saying this until you get it. To give for, uh uh-oh, here it comes, ready? To forgive. Mm. Now you know how we're involved, don't you? This is the process that grace takes us through in training. And when we focus on following Jesus, are you ready? Every moment of your life holds meaning to increase your maturity in measure towards Christ-likeness. Every moment, friends. Christian maturity occurs when aligned moments of learning and applying biblical truths are producing an increased thinking that is aligned with God's word and God's wisdom. When an increased affections of gratitude, of joy, and of love, both for God but also for other people, are increasing in me. Christian maturity is is occurring when increased volition of greater humility in our heart and in our life, greater trust and sacrifice and confidence in Jesus are anchoring us in the decisions that we make and the actions in which we choose to engage. You see, instruction in godliness forms the principal activity in training. We need to know the why and the how-to, basically. We should never be content with right actions that are absent of godly motives. And we should never be content with godly motives or intentions that fail to produce godly actions. You know, there's a country song about a road that is paved with good intentions. Do you know where it leads? Yeah, you do. You know, there's a lot of redemption in country songs, right? You just play them backwards. Friends, don't be satisfied by your actions when you don't know where your motives came from. And don't be satisfied with right motives that are impotent to produce real actions in your life. Often what God does is He reveals to you in your own assessment and evaluation in your heart. He shows you one that's greater and one that's lesser so that you can use the greater to grow the lesser. And when you find that your actions are right, but your motives are absent, ask God, God, why am I doing this? Because I know that you are my defining motive. 
But oftentimes we'll do the right actions just because we want to be the defining motive. We want to impress other people. We want to impress God. And when they're not impressed with us, we grow angry at them. And so we can say, God, I know what the right action is here, but I need to make sure my heart is anchored in the gospel so that I'm motivated by the right intentions for honoring you. And when our motivations are high, but our actions are wrong or null or passive, God, I want to serve you, and I just can't. You know what we're saying? We're not just saying God doesn't care. We're saying God's not able. And there's never a time in the scripture that says, oh, sorry, God can't do that. God is able. And you need to find the disconnect between your wanter and your doer. And I'll tell you where that disconnect is. That Christ has not been enthroned on the heart of your life in every area. You've not surrendered and submitted to Him. You need to humble yourself and say, God, whatever it takes, I don't just want to do this. I want to see you come through in my life. And you'll see those godly motives begin to bring those godly actions into alignment together. That's how God uses them together. Sound gospel doctrine provides both grace-sourced motivation and grace-saturated applications. Godly motives and actions, they help increase one another. But there's a second part about this training I want you to see. It addresses any area of life where Jesus is not yet Lord. You see, what happens is the truth of God's Word uh, uh, that comes to us, it, it, it identifies sinful habits and desires and patterns and strongholds in our actions and our attitudes and our thinking and also in our feeling and, and spirit-led conviction that sometimes comes through us by the conversations and rebuke that come to us. They confront us in our sin. and You know, we never like that because confrontation through a rebuke or conviction is always pushing on an infected, bloated pride. And you know, infection is always sensitive. And when it pushes on it, that spirit-led conviction, though, calls us to turn away from that godliness. That's what Paul is saying here. The power of God's grace is not just to do something for you, but to teach you how to do what has been accomplished for you and to live. To say no to godlessness and to say no to worldly passions that we might live in righteousness and in holiness and obedience and, and godliness. That's what this training is all about. It's never just about wallowing in your sin, but it's about getting up and returning home to the Father. Just like the prodigal son did. Knowing that the Father's love for you will meet you along the way. Anywhere that sin lurks to darken and deceive, training applies the gospel to confront us, but also to comfort us, to call us in repentance out of our sin, but to comfort us in grace, to bring us into the living will of God. Grace restores our life that we might walk with Jesus. That's this process of training. And the third aspect of training is this, that there are goals for which we strive towards and for which we assess. We don't just put up with sin in our life. We don't coddle it. We don't confuse evil with good. We, we extend grace to other people knowing that we need grace in our own heart. And we hold hope in all, not willing to release the hope of Christ that is eternal for the impressions of the world that would seek to steal it from us. We don't add to and we don't take away from Jesus. He is sufficient. He is the all provider of grace from God. And so Christians are trained to live godly in every area of life in order to mature in Christ likeness. And so this process of training defines the first aspect of grace's power that is alive in us, that's transforming us through life's moments into Christ's eternal image. But there's a, another strong and necessary power that grace provides for us. For he goes on to say, waiting for our blessed hope in the midst of this. Listen, friends, the third mark of Christian maturity is that maturity frames our temporal reality with eternal perspective. 
The here and now of this world is interpreted by the eternal perspective that the grace of God gives to us. You see, when grace pierces our reality, it gives us a direct line to eternity and God who is in heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. When God's grace is alive in us, it anchors our life in this world. And so it's not only a power living within us from God that that is training us to say no to the world and say yes to God, but it's also persevering in us to wait in the blessed hope that only comes from God. Listen to me. Waiting describes grace power in us as much as training does, but we don't like waiting near as much. Give me something that I can do for myself, and I'll improve if I choose. Tell me I must just wait on God and trust and I'll reject most every time. What does waiting do? What does grace do in the midst of waiting? You see, grace anchors us. It anchors us in the midst of any and all that occurs in this world that we might hold to the one who is our blessed hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace matures us by transformation through training and waiting in hope. This idea of anchoring us by holding to Jesus as our hope. Let me unpack that just briefly. You see, we don't see the world through rose-colored glasses as Christians. That's not what we're called to do. The gospel, hear me, never compels us to make every situation good. As a matter of fact, it is un-gospel, counter-gospel for us to try to make a situation good just so we can act like we have joy or act like we have love for others. When you, you, you know who does this. This is what I call morning people. Spiritual morning people. Let me put it like that. I, I don't dislike you if you're a morning person. I just don't want to be around you before noon. I'm not a morning person. I don't think there ought to be sound in the world before 10 a.m. And that only if I got my coffee, right? I'm just, that, that's, I'm lightly joking. Mostly serious though. Spiritual morning people are like this. They're aloof, fairytale-minded, cockamamie, hyper-spiritual, holier-than-thou false witnesses. They think if we just say, well, it's just going to be all right. We can ignore the tragedy. We can ignore the suffering. We can ignore and not really entertain into the messiness with it because it's just going to be all right. Listen, the gospel never compels you to make every situation good. The gospel promises you that God will take every situation and turn it for your good. But That's not the same thing as you trying to make it all good. Do you get that? You understand that. And the difference is where we wait and find our hope. The difference is what anchors us. You know, anchors in life are important just like they are for a, a, a seaworthy vessel because oftentimes anchors are used to hold in one place, right? And when the storms and the trials and the tests of life come, when the suffering and the hardships are hammering down upon you, you need something that's just going to hold you to the rock upon which you stand, do you not? And that's how grace anchors us in Jesus. And that period of waiting feels like he's absent, feels like he's quiet, he's silent, he's distant, he's far from me. Is he present? Does he understand what I'm going through? These are the moments that describe waiting in our life. And it seems like everything that's ungodly is winning and getting ahead of us and he tells us that the grace of God is sufficient not only for you to pursue him in training but for you to persevere with him in waiting you know anchors don't just hold us to one place anchors also help us steer when you drop one anchor a little deeper on one side and the other, what happens? A little more drag happens on that side, and the vessel begins to steer back and correct where it had gone astray. That may be the waiting season that you find yourself in today. 
that you're holding on to Christ and you see an area of your life where you've gone astray. You see a way in which you've ceased to believe as fully with a deep conviction of the grace of God full of your life. And maybe you've begun to strain and try to accomplish things for God and try to do things that you know would glorify God, but you're not doing them in a way that would bring God glory. And what you need to do is you need to deepen the convictions and the time in your heart in such a way that steer you back into the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ and bring you back to where your only hope is in Jesus. Not Jesus plus what you can do or Jesus plus what you can get rid of, but Jesus and Jesus alone who will hold you in the midst of the waiting. God's grace, friend, is as equally powerful in the perseverance of waiting as it is in the pursuit of training. Some of you need to hear that today. Because for whatever reason, we take a lot more time to assess and evaluate our lives in the waiting than we do in the training. And so often we're so quick to turn on God and say, boy, I just don't think you hear me, God. I don't think you're paying attention. We begin to question whether he loves us. And I'm here to tell you, God's grace is as great and is as reality shattering in waiting as it is training the fourth mark and I'll close with this one maturity demonstrates Christ's sacrifice through good works that's what he says he says in all of this in the training and in the waiting friends Jesus has redeemed us to purify us a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works The gospel remains the one event in history that for every person who believes changed eternity and every moment with eternal significance. And grace matures Christians to live as Christ modeled, to seek and to serve the lost and to give up our lives so many can come to know the one who gave his life To save. And that's Jesus. You see, when maturity is becoming an increasing reality in your life, it's not a point of arrival. But through this process of both training and waiting, you realize that your zeal for good works is increasing. That your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. And therefore, honoring God in your body becomes a first priority for you. Not only in purity, but also in proclamation of the gospel through service and through sharing. And so, what you are doing is you're increasing in your desire for those good works to come not only in you and to you, but through you to other people. Zealous for good works. Are you zealous? For good works? Are you just happy to get a few off of your to-do list each week? That's what he's saying. That the maturity of the gospel as it grows and seasons and transforms your heart and your mind and your own will begins to be realized when we realize I am Christ's and the world needs to know who he is. Zealous. For good works is the fourth mark of Christian maturity. 